returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephphatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I have come from far away, and his disciples answered him, How can no one feed these people with bread here in the desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said to these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking for him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The word of God. All right, so if you uh, have your Bible, we're obviously in Mark chapter 7. If you have the handout, uh, scriptures are there, and there's also an outline to follow along. How was your week? All right, good. A responsive period of the sermon. Uh, no, that's great. You can always. I would rather hear than not hear. But uh, how, how's your week uh, in terms of progressing towards a goal? Did you have this week a sense of, man, I really moved forward. I really got closer. Does your next week look like a bunch of days to be filled, or do they have a sense of purpose about them? Do you know what? A month from now, you need to be concerned about. Do you have a sense of hope, a sense of courage, a sense of focus in your life? I have to admit that often focus seems to come and go. We live in a world where our days are just filled with stuff, another email, another text, another Facebook post. It is a world of distraction. And you get to the end of the day and you're like, what was this day for? I set off with an objective and I came back with just a bunch of clutter. It feels like sometimes this world just wants to keep us in minutia to keep us bothered by thoughts, to keep us up at 3 a.m., thinking about conversations we had six years ago, and for what? 
It seems to be a world that gives us a lot of anxiety, but not a lot of momentum, not a lot of focus. We're busy, but busy for what? Today's passage, I believe, will help you if you sympathize with me or if you uh, resonate with what I said. It will help us with focus. It will give your life, if your life is uh, feeling like it's out of control or mismanaged or just plain hopeless, it will give you hope. This passage today I believe will give you courage if you recognize, you know what, I need to be this kind of person, but I'm too afraid, and you fall short, or you shrink back from decisions or conversations that you need to have. I believe that in today's passage there is a call and a grounding for courage. In today's passage, Mark provides what I believe is, can be simply summed up as a kingdom preview. He begins this gospel by going out to preach the kingdom of God is near. And here in these select verses, I believe he gives us a gorgeous, beautiful, compelling picture of the kingdom that he has come to bring. We can know that this is a kingdom preview because it is chock full of Old Testament illusions of what the world to come will be like. And so what we have here is a preview, a taste, a picture that is supposed to draw us forward with anticipation and hope. It's very much like a movie preview. Sometimes that's the best part of going to the movies, is just to see what movies are are coming out. But a movie preview sets up anticipation. It's meant to get you excited. It's meant to call you to look forward. Today... Mark wants us to have five previews of the coming kingdom. Five previews that will compel us forward, that will draw us towards its beauty, that will cause us to focus our lives in that direction. In this place in the Gospel of Mark, we are nearing what I would call the hinge of Mark's narrative. He has had Jesus take us through Galilee and do many signs and healings and exorcisms and teachings. He's been in Galilee all around the lake. But here very soon, Jesus' direction is going to change like a hinge. He is going to have another angle, and he's going to be headed for Jerusalem. And so it is no surprise that here, just before that hinge... Jesus presents a kingdom preview so that we know exactly why Jesus came and what Jesus is about to accomplish. The first half of the Gospel of Mark has been about showing us in manifold ways that he is the Lord, the Son of God, and the Savior. And it is because he is the Lord, the Son of God, and the Savior that what we see in this kingdom preview is something that we can hold on to and focus on and hope in. Last week was a significant week in the advancement of the gospel message in Mark's story and in the history of the world because we saw Jesus doing away with the classic separation of Jew and Gentile by, dealing, by, by putting away the, the classification of clean and unclean foods. Those were symbols that he has fulfilled. 
He is the one that brings cleanness. And so it is in Christ that we find cleanness and no longer whether we are Jew or Gentile. And so as Jesus has moved away from dividing people according to the Old Testament clean and unclean classification and is now building the kingdom clearly around himself as the source of cleanness, he is moving into new territory. He is deliberately moving into Gentile country. And today he is going to show us that Gentiles, you and I, are fully included. That Jesus is the Lord, the Son, and the Savior for us as well. So where is your focus? Is your focus set on accomplishing some work task, on accomplishing something in your family? Where is your focus? Or do you find yourself lacking focus altogether? You're just trying to make it to the end of the day most days. Today is an opportunity to set your vision, to give you focus, because it is going to put the future reality in your vision so that now you can orient your day-to-day so that you make sure you are pursuing that. Where we are going is designed to guide us today. And so Jesus is now going to give us these five previews of the coming kingdom, and I ask that you set your vision upon these. So we will ask questions in each and every one of these previews to assure us that we are. The first preview that we have in this passage of the coming kingdom The coming kingdom will include people from all nations. The coming kingdom will include people from all nations. And we see this as we look at verse 31, our very first verse. Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. We remember from last week Jesus' encounter with the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter needed to be exercised of a demon. And we saw that strange conversation. It seemed kind of off-putting. It seemed startling that Jesus was being uh, a bit resistant to the woman's needs. But as we look at that passage, we recognize that what Jesus was doing was, I believe, he was showing the end of the Jew-Gentile distinction. He was doing away with it by, by making its, its, uh, its exclusivity a coarse thing that obviously does not describe Jesus. And so Jesus allows himself to be defeated in argument by the Syrophoenician woman to show that the bread that he came to serve is going to go to the Gentiles just as it went to the Jews. Because Jesus has set the way to God not upon performance of the law, but by grace alone. We come to him to receive everything that we need to have relationship with him. And so now that the relationship is by grace alone, the the gates are wide open for Jew and Gentile to experience the welcome of the kingdom. So from that Syrophoenician uh, encounter, Jesus goes directly into the Decapolis. The Decapolis literally means ten cities, although there were, uh, by some counting, several more than ten cities. But it has the name in the Gospels, has the name in that period of time as the Decapolis. And what these were, were cities founded by Alexander the Great and his great conquest across the, the face of the earth. These are not Jewish cities, is the point. These are Greek cities. These are cities filled with 
uh, worshipers of many different gods. They are pagan cities. We've had one encounter in the Decapolis already in the Gospel of Mark. If you go back to Mark chapter 5, Jesus crosses the sea to deal with the demoniac that has the legion of demons in him. And what do we know about that country? It's infested with unclean pigs. Enough pigs to to run down the, 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 the side of the cliff and make a major show. Well, pig country and Jewish country are not the same country. So that Jesus has gone into the Decapolis, he is showing that he is going to bring his gospel to all nations. He is going to bring the, the gospel to those who have been outside. And it's the same gospel. Go down to verse 8-2. In the same region, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. I have compassion on the crowd. This crowd is a mixed crowd. It has Jew and Gentile. But the important thing is it has lots of Gentiles. It is in the Decapolis. And Jesus says to this crowd full of Jews and Gentiles, but probably predominantly Gentile, I have compassion on them. Now, if you remember the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000 in Mark chapter 6, Jesus used the same word as he looked out at all of his Jewish people who were like sheep without a shepherd. And he said, I have compassion on them. Same Greek word, splachnon, which some of you guys enjoyed. But the idea is his guts are just as worked up and just as moved to reach these people who are not Jewish people as he was when he was feeding a crowd of Jewish people. His love, his heart, his compassion is just as uh, burning and eager and desirous of this people to know him and be in his kingdom as he was for the Jews. It's the same gospel There is no second tier. It's not that he was moved with kindness. It's that he was moved with compassion just as he was moved for his people. The Jewish people, I should say. And this reminds us, Jesus is previewing by going to the Decapolis and reaching out to them with the kingdom message that Jesus' gospel is to gather people from all places. So if you go to the the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation and you turn to the seventh chapter and you read verses 9 and 10, you will see this preview brought to its fullness. We are told, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is previewing this reality as he goes into Gentile country, as he goes into pagan country and offers them the gospel. So as we consider this preview that the kingdom belongs to it is out to, to reach all nations. And as we look at Revelation chapter 7 and see that all nations are gathered together around the Lamb, all robed in the same robes of righteousness given by Christ, what does it do to our focus today? 
our focus should be to bring the gospel to all nations. To share the gospel, to break out of the walls, to make sure that everyone from all nations, tribes, tongues, and languages would be able to hear this message and be gathered around the Lamb. How coincidental, not, it is that on this very day that we preach this very message, we are getting to send a family to a Muslim community. I do genuinely hope that you will be praying daily for the Smith family because they are participating in the kingdom preview that all people will be included around the land. Are we putting our prayer and our work here? Is our focus the same as Jesus, that the kingdom that we are working for, that the kingdom that we want to be citizens of will be a kingdom of all colors and all nations and all languages that, quite frankly, will be a congregation much different than the, one this, than the way we look right here and right now. Does that excite you? Is that your focus? To be part of all nations worshiping the one Lamb. Let us be putting ourselves to prayer and work for this beautiful picture. The second preview that we have in this passage is the kingdom, the coming kingdom will be free from all infirmity. The kingdom will be free from all infirmity. And here we focus on verses 32 to 36, where Jesus takes a man that we are told is deaf and unable to speak and heals him. This passage is unique to Mark. It is again in Gentile country. And it is a man that we are told is deaf. And depending on how you translate the term, he is either mute, unable to speak, or speaks with great difficulty. It is uh, not, there's not necessarily enough to decide which it is, and I guess the point does not matter that much, except that it does indicate that this person's deafness is long-term, it's protracted, It may very well be congenital deafness. His ability to vocalize is clearly quite difficult. So he is not making words and sounds with his mouth that has any memory of making sounds through his ears. And so he sounds very, very strained and very odd in his speech. This man has not heard anything in his ears and has not been able to speak a sensical word in a long time. Maybe the whole of his life. And as we look at this passage, I remember the first time I read this passage as a, as a new Christian, that I was, a bit, I was a bit taken aback. I was a bit offended, honestly, at what, the, what is recorded here. And here's what I was re- offended about. Verse... Uh, 33, 
Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. I remember reading that and I was like, why is Jesus doing such a profane, magic style healing? Why doesn't he just show off like he you know, does in all the other passages and just says the word? He can... He can uh, Cure someone without even being in the, in the room or even proximate. Why is he doing these odd gestures? Why is he maybe perhaps creating the impression that it's his spit that saves? I, I remember reading that. I was like, well, this just, just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't fit up to the aura of Jesus. Now, thankfully, I've, I've come along. I'm okay with it. Uh, what's he doing? I, I, I honestly can tell you I don't know what the spit's about. I don't know. Nobody can tell me in a commentary why the spit. But he used spit. But I, I, I do believe that there is something here that is explanatory of much of what he's doing. He's helping a deaf man. A man who cannot hear, who can't know what's going on. He lives in an utter silent chamber. And so Jesus, because he is tender and compassionate and full of sympathy, chooses to communicate with this man of limited ability with gestures that would be understandable and receivable to him. He can't talk about what's going to happen, so he touches here. I'm going to fix this here. And the tongue, here. I'm going to heal this here. And then he makes sure that his eyes, the the, the man who cannot hear, that his eyes are trained on Jesus. And he says, Aphathatha. So that the man could see the words be opened in his own language, perhaps. In in, in, In a way that he could see, I am speaking to you, so that you know that I am healing here and here. That's what I'm going to do for you. And so I believe that the description, though it may not be as impressive to us as we read it, is is showing us the tender shepherding heart of our Savior who comes and meets the need and addresses the man in a way that he could receive it. I think that's beautiful. Moreover, if we go back to Isaiah, as I told you, this passage is full of Old Testament allusions. Isaiah chapter 35, uh, verses 3 through 6, need to be in our mind as we look at this section. We are told, Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. When Mark uses the word to speak of the man's inability to talk, he uses the exact same word used in this passage of Isaiah for the mute person. It's the only two places in Scripture where this word occurs. And so clearly both 
passages are meant to be read together. But Isaiah's passage is describing what happens when the kingdom comes. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the mute will sing for joy, the lame will leap like a deer. And Jesus is showing us in this passage that he is the bringer of that kingdom because he is loosing the tongue and opening the ears of this man. This is a preview of the kingdom that is to come. I think it is surprising and amazing, and obviously I guess not that surprising, that the items that Isaiah lists in 800 B.C. and the items that Jesus heals in the first century are still in curable conditions with all our modern medicine today. Congenital blindness, congenital hearing loss or deafness, these are th- paralysis, these are things that we do not even have a horizon in modern medicine to resolve. Because they belong to the coming kingdom, but they will happen. They will be ours. They will be true of all who are in the kingdom that deaf ears will hear and blind eyes will see. Because the only one who can do that, the one who made the eye and the ear, has come to restore. More. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing is more than just being a restored to hearing, it is improved. If you look at what uh, verse, uh, what is it, 30, uh, 35, we are said, his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. He spoke plainly. Now, if, if he was a man who had not been able to hear words so that he could not form words for a very long time, it is remarkable that this man immediately speaks plainly. He doesn't go through speech rehab. He immediately speaks plainly. The Greek word is orthos. It's the same word we use in orthopedics and orthodoxy. It means right, correct. Immediately, this deaf man's speech is right. It is perfect. So it is not just restored and then he finishes the work. It is completely given. He is made orthos. And this means, because it is a preview, that we can look forward to our bodies, all of our bodies, made right, made orthos. 1 Corinthians 15 42 tells us this, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. I think that is such an amazing and beautiful picture that whatever ailment you have or whatever ailment you know of, I mean, how many of us are praying for children or for family members or for people in this world that have handicaps, that do not have in this world an experience of orthos? Oh, what a beautiful thing to know. 
by this kingdom preview, there will be orthos. There will be beauty and power and glory where it has been so marred and corrupted in this era. And it will be made for glory and for eternity. It will be incorruptible. The deaf who receive their hearing will hear clearly the angels for eternity. Those who are mute will sing with beautiful voices the glory of their God for eternity. Never fading, never weakening. Are you putting your hope here? Are you sharing that there is a place of orthos? That even though you struggle with infirmities and with conditions and ailments, that there is comfort for that. I look at first at, at uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3 where we are told, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This means that some of us have experienced afflictions. Some of us have experienced non-orthos. So that as we experience the gospel and know its comfort and know its power, that we can uniquely comfort those people who struggle with that infirmity. People who have had to taste cancer are able in the gospel to offer hope to people that get the diagnosis. Those who suffer with same-sex attraction but commit themselves to gospel purity are able to speak to those who struggle with temptations and desires that they do not want and can say, there will be orthos. It's a beautiful thing that the gospel does here. Because we know the kingdom preview, we know that whatever uh, whatever infirmity or suffering that we have gone through, the gospel allows us to redeem it. We've had three broken backs in this congregation in the last like four months. But that's because we have three people who can now speak to people who know that pain and say, I've had that pain. That pain can be redeemed because you know and you know the gospel will be faithful to them because it was faithful to you. Third, so we've seen it will include people from all nations. The the second preview was it will be a place free from all infirmity. Third, we will see that it will be a place filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. It will be a place filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. Look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying... He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is a preview 
of the kingdom. When they say he does all things well, they are saying he, Christ, Jesus, this one who has touched the deaf man and made him hearing, this person has done all things well. I have no ability to improve upon what this man has done. He has done all things well. Another way that you can translate well is he has done all things beautiful. What this man has done everywhere and in every way is beautiful. And I cannot help but respond to that beauty by praising him. He has done all things beautiful. He is beautiful. What is being shown to us here is a preview. You did not see the deaf man. You did not see his healing. You did not see him speak clearly. But it is a preview nonetheless that we can hold on to because just as that man saw himself made orthos, We who hope in Christ will see the Lamb who was slain for us. Again, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, this is the throne room uh, where we see Jesus. We're told, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven thorns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God and sent out into all the earth. And all that are around seeing him, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. What will it be like to come into heaven and see your Savior still marked by what it took to ransom you and redeem you. He in eternity, the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, will appear forever injured because of his love to make you orthos. You will see those hands and those feet and you will say, but by God's grace, I would have borne those sins that went through those hands. What will it be like to see Romans 8.28 fulfilled in our life? For he has worked all things together for the good of those who love him, who call him according to his purpose. We can't see all of the things that God is doing on the other side of the tapestry, but we know that promise is true because the lamb that we will see will show himself slain for us. And so everything that has gone wrong and everything that has been a setback and everything that has hurt us or harmed us or seemed to be a real spite to our life, we will be able to look back and say, Romans 8.28, that was God's loving me and I didn't know it. What he did with that, he made me a comforter. 
You will see your own Psalm 23. You will see him walking through the valley of your shadow of death. You will see him laying you by green pastures. The Greek, I have to talk about the Greek. Um, In verse 37 says, they were astonished beyond measure. They were astonished, amazed. That's a big word, amazed, just blown away. But then they add this adverb, which literally means extraordinary, excessively, profusely. And then Mark adds a prefix to it, hyper, turbocharged. So these people look at Jesus and they are astonished, extraordinary, excessively, profusely, and then hyperly beyond that, they are. Not only are they made beyond measure, but they are made more able to delight, and still they're beyond measure. You know what is one of the most amazing things? Uh, the angels look at our gospel, look at what Jesus has done to save us. In, in 1 Peter 1.12, and they say that they long to look into it. They long to look at what Christ has done for us. Let me put that in modern language. The angels are gobsmacked at what has been done for us. And they have so much more capacity to know and understand than we do. And they continually look into the heavenly council and are amazed beyond measure. Are you filled with wonder? Is your heart set on glorifying Christ? Let me ask you a very direct question. How do you come here to worship? Are you hoping to be moved? Is it, is it waiting for Kevin to sing the right song for you to get into it? Are you waiting for me to put together a good sermon so that you can really be brought in? Or are you here prepared overflowing as a living sacrifice, ready to say hallelujah and amen. Because there is one in heaven who bears the marks of the cross to gather you to worship him. Why is it so hard to bring your heart here? Why is it so hard to get here on time? I say that because we should think about it. Not because I'm trying to lay guilt on anyone. But how beautiful that we are here. We should be filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. It is far greater what he has done for us than healing a deaf person. Let us be filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. If this doesn't fill you with wonder, what will? Fourth. Fourth, it will be a place of wholeness. It will be a place of wholeness. And now we look at the feeding of the 4,000. Verses 8, 1 through 10. Now this passage, many many note, is nearly identical to the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. And some, therefore, say, well, this is a duplicate. Mark just got lazy and started writing the same story twice. Uh, No. (laughs) There are similarities... For sure, but there are clear differences in these passages, i.e., the numbers are clearly different and the audience is clearly different. So, why would Mark 
record or why would Jesus even perform the same miracle twice? Well, we can let him perform miracles as many times as he wants to. But why might he do it for the sake of the narrative? It again goes down to the different audience. The feeding of the 5,000, again, was to the Jewish people. But the feeding of the 4,000 is in the Decapolis. And so what I believe Mark is wanting to show us by the clear duplication of the miracle is that the Gentiles, those who are far off, have the same shepherd. The good shepherd is the shepherd of the Jews and to the Gentiles. The close parallel illustrates that Jesus came to make one flock from Jews and Gentiles with him as their shepherd. John chapter 10 verse 16 says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Again, we go back to the book of Isaiah, where we are told that at the end times this will be true. Isaiah 25, verse 6, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will make for all peoples a feast. Here Jesus is giving us a preview by giving the Gentiles the same meal and the same experience with the shepherd that he gave the Jews. All peoples will eat around the same table, eat the same bread with Jesus. There is communion in Jesus that we see here. Now verse 4 of chapter 8, the disciples again show their penchant for dullness. They're like, well... Where are we going to get the food, Jesus? We're out here in another desolate place, and um, you want us to feed these people? How, how are we going to do that? And you do want to just kind of slap somebody because you just had a feeding of 5,000. What's going on? The commentators uh, struggle with this. Uh, they, the, Mark clearly wants us to recognize that the disciples are, are quite dull, uh, which I guess helps me sympathize with them as it takes me time sometimes to figure these basic things out. This is, you know, there were two sea stories. They both had dullness the second time. This is the second feeding. Maybe it's just the, the fact that they're just really not getting it. Or perhaps they're going back to what Jesus did with a Syrophoenician woman talking about the bread being on the table for the children. And they're saying, well, okay, you know, the, 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 the Gentiles can get some miracles, uh, but they're really not going to have the same shepherd, the same shepherd in the same way. So perhaps the, the disciples don't think that Jesus is going to feed the 4,000 out of some spiritual pride, that that's a miracle for the Jewish people, not for the Gentiles. I don't know. At any rate, they are dull. Let me ask you, though, as we look at this preview, how do we preview the flock of Jesus here at River Community Church? Are we doing a good job of welcoming into the worship of God, the worship of the one lamb for the flock that is made up of all nations? Are we doing a good job of previewing that powerful worship? Romans 15, 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. 
Are we a church of welcoming? Are we a church that is ready to receive whomever the Lord brings to us? Are we a church that manifests and witnesses that the good shepherd is for all people who call upon the name of Christ? And fifth, the kingdom, the coming kingdom, will also have many surprising absences. We have seen that the kingdom will include people of all nations. It will be a place free from all infirmity. It will be filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. It will be a place of wholeness. But we also must end with recognizing it will be a place with many surprising absences. And here we look at verses 11 and to 13 where our Pharisees show up again. The key question here is, will you be in the coming kingdom? Will you be there? And all that I've talked about, will you be there? Because the Pharisees show up to remind us that there will be some surprising absences. The Pharisees come. Now the Pharisees, we're used to them being the bad boys. We're used to them to be the embarrassments. Oh good, we're not the Pharisees. But the fact of the matter is, the Pharisees were the pristine. They were the righteous. They were the very good. The question that was asked by everybody in the first century was, if the Pharisees don't make it, who could possibly make it? Because they didn't only follow the, the Old Testament law to a T, they followed more laws to the T. And they were exceptionally scrupulous. They come to Jesus, though, and they say, give us a sign from heaven They want authentication. They are here to argue with him. They are here with the idea of prove yourself to us. Isn't it sad that on the other side, if they had just shut up and watched, they could have seen the sign that he does all things well, that he feeds the 4,000? What they could just see if they would just watch and listen. But they are truly the deaf ones. Their ears will not be opened. Because they want a sign. They want Jesus to prove it to them. To their satisfaction. And they withhold belief until their perfectly righteous mind is perfectly satisfied with Jesus. And what does Jesus do? After sparring with them a few words, we read this. He left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. He left them. These righteous people, following Torah, very good Jews, exemplary, moral people, have absolutely no sin to confess because they have done everything right. He left them. Those words are meant to picture judgment. His patience has run out. He has engaged these Pharisees again and again and again, and now he just curtly dismisses them, gets in the boat, and goes away from them. The eschatological, the end time significance of this motion is staggering. 
Jesus' patience is limited. The number of opportunities that he will present the gospel to you and give you the opportunity to hear is limited. He does not owe you an unlimited number of opportunities. At some point, he will say, you don't want this, and he will shut your ears, and you won't hear it again. Don't play games with belief. Why did they not make it? Well, we saw last week these words, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. They are righteous, but their heart is far from him. You do not enter by being good. The Pharisees were good, but you do not enter the coming kingdom by being good. You enter by being saved by Christ alone. You cannot make it into the coming kingdom if your heart is cold towards Christ. You must receive it. You must believe him. You must accept him as his Lord and Savior. So let me ask again. Will you be in the coming kingdom? Will you be in the coming kingdom? The coming kingdom is beautiful. It will include people from all nations. It will be a place free from all infirmity. It will be a place filled with wonder at the person and work of Christ. It will be a place of wholeness. But it also will be a place of surprising absences. Will you be there? Or will you be one of the surprising absences? This gospel is beautiful. It's freely offered. You cannot come to it as a Pharisee. You have to come despaired of your own merit. You must come entrusting yourself entirely to God's mercy. In other words, you must come to Christ poor in spirit. But if you do, hear these words for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.